0: Hi, This is Dave Thomas. I'm the next guest on On Screen and Beyond.
1: On Screen and Beyond, an inside look into the entertainment world featuring interviews with people from the movie, TV, and music industry, news on upcoming TV and DVD releases, and the rumor mill. And now... Here's the host of On Screen and Beyond, Brian Zemrak.
2: Thank you for joining us for another episode of On Screen and Beyond. I'm your host, Brian Zemrak, and this is episode 629 of the show that keeps you updated on what's coming your way as far as upcoming new movies, remakes, sequels, and TV and movie DVD releases, as well as our interview segment with a guest from the movie, TV, or music industry. This week on On Screen and Beyond, we have Dave Thomas joining us. Of course, he was one half of Bob and Doug McKenzie, he was in Strange Brew, and he wrote Spies Like Us, and their songs, Bob and Doug songs, were Take Off and The Twelve Days of Christmas, and he's done so much more, we're going to find out a whole lot more about Dave Thomas coming up in a few minutes right here on On Screen and Beyond, so get ready for that. And uh, we also want to remind you once again that uh, if you have a suggestion for a guest here at On Screen and Beyond, you can email it to me at feedback at onscreenandbeyond.com and we uh, would love to hear from you for whatever. It doesn't have to be a suggestion for a guest, but uh, you can do whatever you want. Uh, You know, send send me a message. And uh, I always try to get back to you as fast as I can. Also... If you are listening to On Screen or Beyond for the first time, welcome. We uh, you know, appreciate you joining us. Hope you'll be looking back in our rerun segment and uh, look at all the episodes that we've had. It's just uh, incredible, the guests that we've been able to get. And we uh, hope that you'll find some more that you'll be enjoying. And also, if you are going to be, keep listening to On Screen and Beyond, which we hope you'll do, we hope that you will subscribe uh, It's free uh, on any of your podcast providers, just so, you know, you click that and that way you don't have to look every week to see if we have an episode coming up. You can just automatically get it. So the second I turn around and post it, boom, you've got it. So you don't have to be looking around wondering, you know, who the guest is or anything. Just just listen, you know, it's it's going to be there. And I uh, hope you'll do that. It'll help us and uh, also tell a friend to get the word out about On Screen and Beyond. So uh, we have all kinds of episodes coming up. We're going to have a flurry coming your way very shortly because of the Golden Girls uh, tribute behind the Golden Curtain that's coming your way. That's uh, going to be at the Orinda Theater in Orinda, California on May 26th through the 28th. A whole lot of guests are going to be there, and there's going to be shows and. Uh, Trivia contests, lectures, parties, the whole work's going to be a lot of fun. And we are getting some of the guests that are going to be there on On Screen and Beyond. So uh, we'll be coming up with those in the next couple of episodes. We hope we got a lot of them coming our way. We're making arrangements here, trying to get more. So uh, they're going to be one of those things where you're going to get more than one episode a week of On Screen and Beyond because it's just so fast and furious as it comes your way. So uh, we'll keep you updated on that. And uh, that's uh, about it for right now, because we got to get going. Dave Thomas is going to be joining us. And it is time for Remakes, Sequels, and Prequels on On Screen and Beyond. Please hang up and try again. Remakes, Sequels, and Prequels. It looks like Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat is getting redone for Amazon Studios. And it's going to be done by John M. Chu, who made Wicked. And the filmmakers who brought us the relaunch of the Scream franchise will be joining with Universal for a very secretive, untitled monster movie. Keep you updated as we hear more. And Euphoria's Eric Dane has joined the cast of Bad Boys 4, Fast 10, (laughs) drives into theaters on May 19th with Vin Diesel, Michelle Rodriguez, Jason Statham, Helen Maron, as Scott Eastwood, and a whole lot more will be coming your way. And that's it for remakes, sequels, and prequels. Coming up next on On Screen and Beyond, upcoming new movies. Upcoming new movies, August 25th, Helen Maron once again, and Gillian Anderson will be in the cast of Whitebird, uh, A Wonder Story. And that's uh, going to be August uh, 25th. And on August 18th, it's going to be in select theaters. Okay, so the 25th, it's everywhere. 18th, it's in select theaters. So some of you might be able to see it a little bit earlier. And Will Young Lee of The Good Doctor has joined the cast of a psychological drama called Shelter Me with Nick Nolte and Jacqueline Bisset. And Brian Cranston, he's going to be joining in a film called Everything is Going to be Great. And he'll be starring in that along with a lot of other people. And that's it for upcoming new movies. Next on On Screen and Beyond...
1: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and NA, member FDIC. This
0: is Bob Barker,
3: and you're listening to On Screen and Beyond.
2: Movies and TV on DVD and streaming April 28th. The Feel Good Comedy Champions with Woody Harrelson will be landing on digital blu-ray dvd and on peacock and one day as a lion with scott Kahn and jk simmons and frank grillo comes to dvd and let's see what else here 65 with adam driver will be hitting blu-ray and dvd on may 30th may 30th also brings us assassin with bruce willis as it arrives on dvd and La Brea Season 2 falls on June 6th on Blu-ray. And The Handmaid's Tale Season 5 strolls onto to DVD on June 6th. And that's it for movies, TV, on DVD, and streaming. Coming up next on On Screen and Beyond, TV and Entertainment Time. TV and entertainment time. Well, The Walking Dead, it's not dead, it's still coming your way. The Walking Dead, Dead City premieres on AMC on June 18th, and Disney Plus has canceled National Treasure Series. Uh, so, you know, no second season for that one. And Station 19 has been renewed for season seven over on ABC. And that's it for TV and Entertainment Time. Coming up next on On Screen and Beyond, we sit down and have a nice chat with Dave Thomas. And you know him from SCTV, also Strange Brew, Bob and Doug McKenzie, the song Takeoff, 12 Days of Christmas. Uh, He wrote all kinds of stuff, he's done so much. Dave Thomas, next, right here on On Screen and Beyond. Today on On Screen and Beyond, our guest is a Grammy nominee and an Emmy winner. He is also an actor, a writer, and a producer who wrote Strange Brew, Spies Like Us, and he co-starred on the show Grace Under Fire, voiced the moose Took in Disney's Brother Bear, and was half of the comedy duo Bob and Doug McKenzie. It's Dave Thomas. Dave, welcome to On Screen and Beyond. Pleasure to be here. Now, Dave, I have to apologize right off the bat because with your career, I could not condense it into a little introduction <laughs> without taking up the whole half hour that we have. So I apologize for that.
0: Yeah, it's kind of eclectic. I've been all over the place. And it was really, the reason for it is that I basically just did what I wanted to do. Yeah, I never listened to an agent. And I never listened to a manager, and um, I had, and probably I would have done better uh, in terms of making money or becoming, you know, bankable if I'd listened to them. But I just didn't – I wanted to do – I wanted to do everything. I wanted to do different things, you know?
2: Yeah. Was it uh, fun that pushed you on? You You wanted to do something that was fun?
0: It was always for fun. I had a serious job in advertising as a copywriter before I started doing this. And then I quit that job. I was making a lot of money. And I quit that job for 145 bucks a week to be in Second City because I was going to be working with Dan Aykroyd and John Candy and mm. Gilda Radner and Andrea Martin and Catherine O'Hara and Eugene Levy. Wow. People like that who... I really respected and thought were funny, and it looked like it was going to be a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. So that's the kind of course that I've taken. Yeah, you know. And over the years, oh man, I mean, I can't begin to tell you the stuff that I've done. (laughs) It's just, you know, I played golf with Bob Hope. I've been to his house as a guest. I had lunch with Johnny Carson. I Drove through Texas with Dan Aykroyd writing a, a script about UFOs. I hmm. I spent a weekend with Hunter Thompson. I I, I did I did you know uh, voices on The Simpsons and Family Guy and uh, I, I I can't even begin to
2: yeah. It's um, an incredible life. That's for sure. It,
0: it's been a lot of fun. Yeah. And I never would have dreamed at the outset that I would have done all the things I did or had as much fun.
2: Yeah. When you were a kid in high school or junior high, were you the, you know, the funny guy, the, the the class clown, that type of thing?
0: I was a class clown, but I did not do any plays in high school because I didn't want to do, I didn't want to put on a white wig and a bad prop, bad costume and use bad props in a high school play in front of a bunch of kids. I wanted to be on real TV, hmm. even when I was a teenager. So I, I didn't I didn't ever audition for any of the plays, and I wasn't in any of the plays in high school. It wasn't until I got to uh, university when I met Martin Short and Eugene Levy, and we started our own kind of drama group uh, that I started doing plays with them, because it was just so much fun and um and we were able to to create realities on stage that i thought were far superior to the kind of realities that were offered uh in high school so you know that that became a playground my entire time as an undergraduate uh 4 years doing a english lit degree was spent I don't think I, after the first year, I never went to any classes. I was just doing (laughs) plays. I was, I was director of announcing for the radio station there. I was editor of the student paper. Uh, You know, I did whatever I could that was out there because it was just fun.
2: You Mm -hmm. know? Yeah. So when you were doing that, that stuff, uh, you know, you mentioned dramas with some of the funniest people uh, you know, on earth really. And, and you, you guys were doing draw dramas and, uh, I understand you did Godspell with a bunch of people and, and, but those people and you are all so funny. How are you doing drama all the time?
0: (laughs) Well, we, we went to the student, there was no, um, uh, theater school or no television school or no classes where you could do that. Um, so we went to the student union Mm -hmm. and proposed that we marty short and i went to the student union proposed that we start our own group and we want to do comedies like the odd couple and um that neil simon play and we you know when students when undergraduate students are in charge of money they become very very full of themselves and very officious and uh these students who were doling out the money on behalf of the student union said, well, that's not artistic enough for us. If if you were doing Shakespeare plays, oh, we <laughs> we would give you the money. And we said, okay, we'll do, we'll create McMaster Shakespearean players. But we want to also be able to do other plays. And they said, well, that's all right, as long as you do some Shakespeare plays. So we created, Marty Short and I started, um McMaster Shakespearean players and the first play we did was The Odd Couple (laughs) (laughs) and we did we did do Shakespeare plays but we did some of the lighter ones the comedies and you know um you
2: snuck around it that's what you did
0: (laughs) yeah but we had fun yeah we wrote our own plays we wrote a a rock musical version of Frankenstein and, um, and a couple of other fun plays that we put on and, um, and it became fun. And then, and then they left after they graduated, Marty and Eugene left to go to Toronto to see if they could get work there. And they got into the cast of Godspell and I drifted into a, teaching assistantship uh, while doing a master's degree in English lit where I had to teach first year tutorials in English lit. I hated that (laughs) so much. I can't tell you my buddies are in Toronto in Godspell and I'm doing this shit Milton and Chaucer and Shakespeare. Oh man. It was just depressing. And so I started writing comedy scripts. And um, I drove to Toronto, my little Volkswagen. I had eight sketches. I had written eight sketches. I was very proud of them. You know, they were my first sketches. And, uh, oh, I went to every place. and I went to CBC, CTV. I went to every Canadian broadcaster. I knocked on every door of every production company and just got one after another slammed in my face it was horrible hmm. and then i got to cbc radio which was sort of my last stop i didn't really want to do radio but i met this guy there he was a producer at cbc radio and he read my eight scripts and he said these are funny i i have a show on a radio show on and we do sketches we do sketch comedy so i'll buy five of these and he paid me 75 bucks for each of the five and man, I left there. I was so happy. It was like, <laughs> all right, <laughs> Big I'm <in> time. business. <laughs> I'm in show business. Gr- granted, I'm in radio. I'm not where I wanted to be, which was TV, mm-hmm. but, uh, better than nothing. And so I started writing
3: those. And then, um, halfway into the run of Godspell, they had a cast change. And I got a call from Eugene, and he said, You got to get to Toronto right away because uh, they're auditioning. And
0: uh, if you auditioned, you might be able to get in to the cast of Godspell. So I auditioned. <coughs> I drove to Toronto, I auditioned, and I got in. And
3: now I've got a problem because I'm teaching tutorials in English Lit to
0: first-year students. I'm on a scholarship doing a master's degree in English Lit. I'm not going to any classes because I have to go to rehearsals for Godspell. <laughs> and and then once I get into the show, I can come back and do the tutorials and and some classes, but, um, but I got to leave every afternoon because I'm in the show
3: that night. And um, it was pretty hairy. And when I got to my final um, thesis
0: requirement, which was a edition of Troilus and Cressida from the original quartos of Shakespeare, which are the unannotated, um, almost handwritten in um, Elizabethan English, you know, a lot of words have ease on them that don't have ease now. And a lot of S's look like f's, but uh, it's readable, but it's difficult, but it's it's slow. and then there's all kinds of classical references that needed annotation, and those, so that was the job was to annotate a an edition of Troils and Cressida. and I knew I wasn't going to be able to do this, <laughs> so I took some of my Godspell money, and I paid a typist a student typist from the newspaper. We had a lot of uh, typists that when I was editor, we brought good-looking girls in as typists so that that would attract writers to the newspaper. (laughs) So I got one of those gals to uh, type up my edition of Troyes and Crescent. I said, but only type half a page. Like, leave the bottom page blank. Because I needed that for my annotations, which I was going to handwrite. So I typed the text in the top part. She typed the text in the top part. And then I annotated the bottom part. And it took me about two days. I just burned through it and then just handed it in. And I didn't give a flying shit whether they liked it or not, you know? <laughs> and <laughs> so I'm still going to God's Bell at night. I'm in the show and then I'm coming back and trying to do these tutorials and classes in the
3: day. And I get a note from my supervisor, Dr. Hammond. Come and see me. Urgent. So I go in and see him. And he's got my my trials and Cressida thesis there. And he just kind of tosses it on the desk. And he goes, what am I supposed to make of this? And I said,
0: I, I don't know. What do you want to make of it? And he said, well, this is your entire years work and it looks like i you maybe the absolute most spent you know three or four weeks on it and i said well if you want to know the honest truth i think i spent three nights <laughs> and uh he said you're kidding i said no and he said why i said because i'm i don't belong here i'm my mother ruined my life by saying don't be a quitter. You can't quit. I should have quit earlier in the year and just withdrawn. But don't be a quitter. That was burned into my DNA by the family. Hmm. So I'm in Godspell at night. He said, "You're in Godspell in in Toronto." He would seen the play. I said, "Yeah," but he had seen it with the earlier cast. He didn't see it with me. And he said, "I can't." Believe-. He said, "And you're still coming?" I said, "Yeah." It's a lot of driving, and it's crazy, but. I still made my tutorials and I still did the work, but you know, I did a really shitty job in the work and I'm sorry. And he said, Well, this is considering it took you three nights, it's quite remarkable. He said, But I don't want you in a PhD program, not not after
3: being here. So he said, I'll make you a deal. He said, if you promise not to go on to do a PhD. And ever use your master's degree as, you know, currency to do
0: that. Um, I'll give you a B. (laughs) (laughs) Which is not a good enough grade to get you into a good school. But you could get into a bad school, but I don't even want you to do it. I said, look, you have my solemn word. I will never go on to do a PhD in this list.
3: That
0: was it. And I went back to God's (laughs) film. And then after a while, Godspell closed, and then I was an out-of-work actor looking for a gig.
2: Huh. Now, you mentioned earlier about, uh, you know, working with Bob Hope and everything, uh, and you did impressions of Bob Hope. Did he ever mention to you, you know, did he like it? Or did How did he
3: feel about that? Well, I
0: think he acknowledged that it was a good impression of him because people told him that. But I think it's really hard for somebody to hear their own voice being imitated and think that it's a good impersonation. I've seen a bunch of impersonators with the person, sitting with the person Mm
1: -hmm. that they're
0: doing and the person goes, that doesn't sound like me. (laughs) And so I think that was kind of Hope's reaction. But all of his writers loved it and talked to him about it. So I met him in 1980 at uh, in Toronto at the O'Keefe Center. He was doing a show there. And one of his writers, coincidentally, was also writing for SCTV at that time. So he knew, he he said, well, I'll get you in backstage to meet Bob because he's heard about this. And I said, well, can I bring a couple of tapes of me impersonating him to show him? He said, sure, sure. So I even had the theater set up a, uh, TV and a and a VCR. It was actually uh, more difficult than because it was a a three quarter inch VCR.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It was the kind that they used at television stations. You know. Yep. Well, they would go from um, inch or two inch down to three quarter inch for editing. Anyway, um, so I meet Bob and I and it was really kind of interesting, but he was kind of competitive with me. He was like, you know, he looks at me and he said, "How long?" He sees this thing with me and Rick Moranis doing "Play It Again, Bob," and it's and Rick is Woody Allen and I'm Bob Hope. And he said, how, "How long did it take you to? How long did you have to shoot this?" And I said, "Well, you know, it takes like a probably it took a day and a half or something like that, because we did single camera film style." Mm-hmm. So it was shot to shot to shot, and then it was edited, you know, so. Yeah. And he said, yeah, yeah, well, he said, on one of my specials, I'd have about, you know, 10 minutes
3: to shoot something like this. And I said, well, okay, good. <laughs> anyway, cut to uh, years later. This would be like almost a decade later. And I'm on one of his specials uh, as
0: um, host with Crystal Bernard because he's kind of too old to host his own specials now, you know.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And um, and then I ended up spending
3: time with him. And and when I was doing Grace Under Fire, I got a call from his publicist, Ward Grant. And
0: Ward says Bob wants you to come over to the house. Well, he lived in Toluga Lake, which was right near the CBS Radford Studios where we shot Chris Under Fire. So I could be there in five minutes, you know? And I said, yeah, sure. I'll come right over. So I drove over to Bob's house. It's a pretty impressive place, you know? It was a gigantic lot. Mm-hmm. It was two lots, actually. And um big swimming pool. And he had a pitching wedge. It's like a little uh, one-hole golfing green in his backyard.
3: And uh, I get to the house, and he says he's upstairs outside his bedroom in the
0: makeup area there. And so I said, all right. So I walk up the stairs, and as I'm walking up, Hope sees me. He goes, he goes, hi, Dave, what are you doing here? I said, well, Ward Grant said you wanted me to come over. He looks at me, he goes, oh, yeah? Well, what do you want? And I I knew you don't get into it with an old guy like that. You say, <laughs> no, no, Ward, said you wanted me to come over, and now you're asking me what I want. So I just said, I want to see that picture you have of General Patton pissing in the Rhine. I'd heard about this, that he had a photo of Patton pissing in the Rhine. And, and he lit up like a Christmas tree. Hope said, you heard about that? Come here, I'll show you. And he had it outside his bedroom. He had this wall of photos and and he said, there were three of these photos. And the Patton family wanted them back. And he said, they got the other two, but I'd never given them this one. He said, you know, Patton told Hitler that he was going to cut a swath through Germany and piss in his rhymes, And I got a picture of him doing it. <laughs> so it's like, you know, it was pretty remarkable to spend you know, a half day with Bob at his house looking at his pictures and his memorabilia and sure. talking to him. <laughs> and Entertainment Tonight found out that I was going over there to visit him. So they sent a camera, you know, with a sun gun and a uh, uh, an interviewer there to just pick up one of their sound bites that they do. And anyway, this guy recorded a whole sit-down thing of Bob and I talking at his house. And I said to the guy, they called that the B-roll. You know what I mean? The A-roll would be the little sound bite, the three-second thing that would be on the air. And then the B-roll was all the other footage. And I said to the cameraman, because I knew these guys. I'd done a lot of shows at this point. And I'd recognize these guys. And I said, hey, can I get a copy of the B-roll? He said, yeah, sure, give me your uh, info and i'll send it over to you so i got the b-roll
1: hmm.
0: and i had that in that i had that interview up on my website com, yeah. mm-hmm. of me and hope and and so you know so anyway um i did his night his i did bob Hope's 90th birthday it was at NBC. it was a gigantic show with you know walter cronkite and george burns and generals and ex-presidents and everybody there it was a and i played um chester hope his nephew, doing my impersonation of Bob Hope. It was a pretty amazing time, you know, and and by this time, I did one of his shows with his daughter, Linda, as producer. And so I became kind of friendly with Linda, and um, she thought my impersonation was pretty amazing. We went over to Bob, he was eating, you know, and it's funny how, it's important to these old guys like Bob's 92 or something at this point point. Mm-hmm. and he's eating a steak <clears throat> and he does, he really doesn't want to be bothered while he's eating his steak. <laughs> but Linda drinks me up to him, you know, and says, Hey dad, you know, this is Dave Thomas. You remember Dave? And he goes, yeah, yeah, I know Dave. And he says, um, she says, well, he called me up the other day. And, and, uh, and impersonated you, and I thought it was you. And and she said, It scared the hell out of me. And then Bob, without looking up, he's eating a steak. He goes, Yeah, he scares the hell out of me, too. <laughs> so you know what I mean? When you say, What kind of relationship do I have with Bob Hope? It's like,
1: eh,
0: you know, I, I sat and chatted with him. I asked him questions, you know. Mm-hmm. We we were on that on one of his i did three shows with him i think we were on set on one of his shows and uh, they broke for lunch and they said uh hey bob do you want to go back to your dressing room and he's old he doesn't want to move around he goes nah, I just stay here so we were we're sitting and he said dave do you want do you want to go i said no i'll sit with bob so i sat with him during the whole lunch we
3: just talked you know and i I had a lot of things I wanted to ask him, you know, like uh questions that
0: I'd had cuz I I'd, I'd had lunch and dinner with some of his writers, you know, um and uh Jeff Baron and um, Bob Mills and um Shavelson and oh, oh so many, like about a, a half dozen dozen of his writers I became friends with them over the years. So I said to him, "Hey Bob, how come you never played Las Vegas?" Cuz I thought that was a legitimate question cuz you know, Bob was this guy who did appearances all over the country. He'd do a Boy Scouts breakfast for 25 grand, you know what I mean? Yeah. So he <laughs> was all about appearing, making money and he'd bring Barney McNulty, his credit card guy with his cue card guy with him. And uh that was his name Barney McNulty. And um and he'd do all these gigs, but he never did Vegas. And then you think of Sinatra and and all these people that played Vegas and made big money at the casinos, you know? Right. And I wondered about that. And so I said, hey, Bob, how, how come you never played Vegas? And he said, why do you want to know? <laughs> and I said, well, and this is actually true. I said, well, I'd heard maybe your wife, uh, Dolores, uh, who's a devout Catholic had, had something to do with it? And he said, well, "He said she. Why would she have something to do? She had no say in what I do." He got mad at me, hmm. and now I'm sitting here with Hope, and I got Bob Hope mad at me. You know, and I like, oh, <laughs> what am I doing? And so I, I backpedaled a little bit, and I said, "Well, you know, she's a devout Catholic, you know, and she built this church out in the valley here." He calms down. He goes, "Yeah, yeah." He said, "I." He said, "You know why? You know why I I, I never played Vegas?" He said, "Because right in about 1960, I had this idea for a show that I was going to do there, where I'd be the highest-paid entertainer to ever play in Vegas." And my people did a little number with his people, and they they went back and and they wouldn't come up with the money. So I just figured, screw them, and I, ne- I never went back.
1: Hmm.
0: Well. The part of that story that made me laugh was that he said he had his idea for a show he wanted to do. And it was like not, you know, Bob Hope after nuclear war or some thematic thing that might be interesting. It was that he would be the highest paid entertainer to ever play in Vegas. That was his idea. Hmm. Well, that made me laugh. So
3: there were a lot of fun things. I did a roast for him at the um, Beverly Hilton Motel, a uh, hotel, uh, Merv Griffin's hotel. And, um, and he was
0: pretty feeble at this point. And it was, a, I don't, I had no reason being on that dais, You know, it was a bunch of real professional standups and, um, and me, but anyway, I was there. Phil Stiller was there. Phil Stiller did a joke that I was going to do and turned down because I didn't think it was any good. And that joke killed, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, Norm Crosby and um, Sid Caesar and wow, a bunch of people like that. And we're all getting up and roasting. Bomb. And I got up and I bombed because I had a stupid joke that I wanted to do that I thought was great. And Tom Poston was also in the dais. He played my dad in Grace Under Fire. Mm-hmm. And he warned me not to do that joke. And he said, it's not going to play. And I said, ah, it's worth a shot. I said, besides, I don't care. If it doesn't play, it doesn't play. <laughs> well, it tanked. Jeez. The joke Jeez. bombed. And I and I turned and looked at Tom as, as I basked in the silence of my failed joke. And he's just looking down, nodding his head like, Told you. Told you it, Bob. <laughs> so anyway, as I said, Bob was getting kind of feeble here. And I remember at the end, there was this thing where they made us get up on these risers to do media. And Bob was nervous about the riser. He wasn't good. He wasn't stable on his feet. And uh, and I said, um, I just grabbed him by the elbow. And I said, here, I got you, Bob. Come on. And I helped him up the stairs. And he said, where's Delore? She normally helps me, helps me with these things. Where is she? And he was just a cranky, mad old man that didn't have anyone helping him because he was afraid he was going to fall, you know? And mm-hmm. it was like, it was sad. Yeah. It was like, you know what I mean? I'd, I'd gone full circle in my appreciation for him in his road movies right. when he was young and in his prime to a feeble old guy that, you know, stayed in the game. Far too long, and
2: that's too
1: bad. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. So, but but you know what I mean. It was an experience.
2: Oh yes, definitely. I mean, and he's a legend. So you know, you got a chance to work and and meet him. (laughs) So that was great.
0: I had lunch with Johnny Carson after he retired, and Johnny um, really made a big deal out of the fact that you know Hope and Sinatra and people like that that refused to retire are morons because they're 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 not playing the game the way they did when they were good and and Carson wanted to leave while he was still while he still had it, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And and uh, there's there's some value to that, you know. Mhm. Yeah. I remember when I was a little kid hearing that the actor who played Hopalong Cassidy, uh, William Hopper, and got to a certain age and then refused to appear in public Wow. And the reason was he got so old he didn't want the kids his fans to see him look like that. Hmm. Yeah. And so you know uh, that's that's another part of the business that is that you get old. Right. Well, yeah. and, <laughs> and then if you stay in the game you get old on camera. And then <coughs> Excuse me. Some people will will Tune you in and and they haven't seen you for a decade or something. And they'll look at you and go, holy shit, what happened to him? (laughs) Do you know what I mean? And and you're with your parents and your aunts and uncles and other people like that who do get old and you kind of see it happening gradually. But Mm -hmm. when you you tune into somebody who gets old kind of in an instant where you kind of go from you haven't seen them for a while to a decade later... You tune in and they've gone through that visibly aging thing. And I'll tell you, I'm um, I'm 74 now, and there's that you remember that saying, "60 um, is the new 40." Right? Yeah. People were people who were 60 were saying that. Well, my saying that I invented was, "Yeah, 60 may be the new 40, but 70 is 70." <laughs> you don't. That's one of those that's one of those lines in the sand that once you cross over that and then if you're lucky enough to make it to 90 oh my god that's another one where you just you become a, a real shadow of your former self and my mom lived to 94 her last once she crossed the threshold of 90 it was her life was horrible you know yeah, yeah. it's just a point where modern medicine is keeping us alive way past our Best Buy date, you know? Yeah.
2: Would you consider Bob Hope to be one of your idols, or were there other people that you were? I mean, you worked with Henry Fonda, right?
0: Yeah, that was my first movie, um, uh, Home to Stay. I think it, it was originally Grandpa and Frank, which I could see why they changed that
3: title. It's a pretty crappy title. <laughs> but, um, but the Home to Stay is not great either. Um, Yeah,
0: and uh, Hope was definitely somebody that I admired when I was a kid. See, Hope gets a real bad rap. And he's really, like, people are ganging up on him right now on the internet. And this is like, well, you wait 20 years to judge the guy after he's dead, Mm -hmm. and you judge him on the last 20 years of his life? I judged him when he was really at his peak during the road movies. Oh, yeah. Uh, But He was still good up until about 1960. And then he did uh, Road to Hong Kong with Bing, trying to recap that. It was a terrible movie. I remember seeing that as a Hope fan and being really disappointed. And then he started doing, you know, I'll Take Sweden and all these things Mm -hmm. with, you know, um, (laughs) blonde bombshells that he was basically trying to bag. And um, eh, eh. that's when he really stayed at the party too long, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and his specials, which he took, he took an incredible amount of heat during the Vietnam War for being pro-military. And what they didn't understand about Bob, which I understood even before I, he confirmed this in a conversation, was that things got messy. In World War II, there was a bad guy, Hitler. And everybody was kind of like, oh, he's bad. we got to stop that guy. And then the military-industrial complex grew, and then it needed wars to feed itself. And then the capitalism started running the war machine, and it was like, oh, my God, what's going on here? Things started to change. And... Um the reason for being at war changed. And so the Vietnam War became a very unpopular war. I think the Korean War was a little unpopular, but by the time it got to Vietnam, it was ridiculously unpopular. Mm-hmm. And then there was the whole counterculture move against it. Well, the fact that Hope was still supporting the troops and the soldiers at that time was was abhorrent to these hippies. They were like, oh my God, he's the bad guy. You know, he's the establishment." He's the man. And he wasn't. He was just an old guy doing what he had always done, but it kind of lost touch with his audience, you know? Yep. yep. And 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 you can't... I, I, I'm a little more gentle uh, than some of those people were, you know? You can't blame somebody for that. I mean, mm. They were only doing what they know how to do, you know? Right, right. Yeah. So, a- anyway... There's a line in um, Three Days of the Condor, uh, Robert Redford, uh, Sidney Pollock directed it. It's
3: a Mm -hmm. great movie. Yep. And John Hausman is being asked by um, Cliff Robertson about the old days of the OSS and and the precursor to the CIA.
0: And he says, do you miss those days? And Hausman says... No, I don't miss those days, but I miss the clarity. And that's, in one sentence, that's a nutshell for the difference between World War II going against Hitler and, you know, Operation Iraqi Freedom, you know. Give me a break. (laughs) There's There's like a point at which the and 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 do you blame the soldiers? No, do you spit on them when they come home from these no these these are kids that are out there risking their lives for something that that they believe matters. You don't spit on people for that right That's ridiculous, so you know, I just found it to be very confusing, and I think Hope found it confusing and and that's what he said he said he said it got real messy in Vietnam, and he said, I just figured. My country, right or wrong, I'm sticking with my country mm-hmm. and and by that he meant the status quo the president, what the current administration was doing, what their policy was, that was what Bob was doing right. and there was another part of him <laughs> that was tremendously flattered by being able to sit with presidents and stay at the White House and things like that it, you know he was I know from looking at his pictures with him in his hallway, and you know, he was like pictures of him with every president, you know, and I was like, who's your famous president? Who's your favorite president? He said, Oh, Ike, Ike by far. Hmm. He said, he let me stay in the white house, you know, (laughs) and, and just hope getting to sleep. This is a vaudeville entertainer that gets to sleep in the white house. And that's a big deal for him. You can see that. Right. You know? Yeah. So Uh I, I think one of the things that has happened to me as a, as I got older is that I realize I don't know what I thought I knew when I was younger. I'm nowhere near as smart as I thought I was. <laughs> and, and the other part of it is that I'm much more tolerant because, you know, I'm not an evangelical Christian, but if somebody wants to put all their worries on the shoulders of Jesus Christ and that that gives them peace and comfort... What are you going to do? Yeah. Are you going to yell at these people and tell them they're full of shit? Yeah. No. I mean, <laughs> live and let live, you know? So that's, that's where I ended up. And it, and that sort of became my mantra with these entertainers, you know, that stay at the party too long. Yeah. <laughs>
2: Holy Interviews! Hi, this is Bert Ward Robin from TV's Batman. I'm on, on screen and beyond. Wowie Zowie to the Batmobile. Well, I got to ask you, Dave, and and if you don't want to answer this, that's fine. Uh, But um, I was going through your website, and Mm -hmm. I was going through the gallery, and I I strongly, (coughs) strongly suggest that people go to your website and check out the gallery, because there's some great pictures in there. But there's one picture in particular that I came across, and I wonder, they, I figured there has to be a story behind this, this picture. It's you and Martin Short sitting at a table, looks like you were having dinner or something, and you have, you're, you guys are young, you have a bandage on your nose, and on your forehead, you have a, uh, a bruise. So, if, like you say, if you don't want to tell us about it, that's fine, but no, I tell you. I'm not, happy to. there's got to be something. Be a,
0: it's not what you were hoping for, which, which is, you know, a brawl outside the comedy store or something like that. <laughs> I did get into a push fight with um, uh, Andy Kaufman outside the comedy store. I'll tell you that one in a minute. But that photo was taken on uh, the evening of, at the reception for Harold, Harold Ramis's second wedding his second marriage mm-hmm. and on the day of his wedding <coughs> i was doing my exercise cycle in the morning and the chain broke and i went <laughs> face forward oh. into the panel cut my nose open and and got a, a black eye and had to go to his wedding looking like i got beat up <laughs> by my wife you know and um so that's how that happened that that's that's the story behind that okay i like you say it,
2: it just it, it, scrolling through i saw that one it's like that. okay there's gotta be some kind of story behind this one <laughs> because, yeah 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 now one of the biggest things that everybody i mean you know yeah i shouldn't say that because you know there was you've done everything you've done you've done a lot of big things but but I can remember because I was on the radio at the time and I was playing, you know, take off and uh, your Christmas song. And, and it was like every year after that, they were calling, they wanted to hear that song. Uh, But uh, Bob and Doug McKenzie uh, was, was that the highlight so far of your
0: life? Do you think? Uh... Well, it's really funny, you know, because we both Rick and I are kind of conflicted about
3: that. Um, we we never wrote a word for Bob and Doug until we got that
0: movie oh, really? with MGM. Yeah. They were all improvised, and they were throwaways, and they were basically filler because the Canadian version was two minutes longer, had less commercial content than the American version, so... They're basically filler, and then NBC heard the, the the we got a record deal, and then and then NBC said, "Oh no, we want Bob and Doug, we want them on a, on in our version too." So, but they were filler, and Rick and I used to record them at the end of the day, sometimes at the end of the week. The producer would say, "Let's shoot some Bob and Dogs," <laughs> and they were very uh, uh, cost efficient for. Compared to the other stuff that we shot at SCTV, because SCTV was shot like film. It was shot single camera. So,
1: mm-hmm.
0: up new setup, new setup, <clears throat> lighting sets, all this kind of stuff. Bob Doug was just shot against a flat of a map of Canada, me and Rick sitting drinking beer, one camera. Real Most beer? Most of the crew. What? Real beer? Real beer. Most <laughs> of the crew went home and they just left uh, the floor director, Jamie Rock, and a, a cameraman and the switcher up in the booth. And everyone else went home. And Rick and I would shoot maybe, I don't know, ten of them. And they were all counted in. They are exactly two minutes long. So we'd get a ten count in and frequently, I wish we had some of the B-roll and some of the outtakes. You know, Rick would Turn to me during the count, you know, in five, four, and he'd turn to me and say, you got anything? And I go, yeah. <laughs> and then yeah, you get the cue. And so the reason for that cue was sort of a stall that I can't even do it anymore. That was, that was a stall that became our kind of little theme, but it was also to give us a little more time to think of something <laughs> to do. So we would, <coughs> excuse me, we would get a 10 count when we're at a minute 50. So you got to wrap this up in 10 and it'd be the, you'd see the fingers disappearing. You go down to five, four, three, two, one. And then you, yeah. and that's our show. Good day. So we would do maybe 10, 12 of these, and maybe two of them would be good. And they'd throw the rest out. But that was still very cost effective shooting for the show because they would get four minutes of programming in an hour of time they they never got that yeah. with all the setups and the lighting and costumes and everything that and cast that yeah. the other
3: sketches required so backing up, I said, I was kind of conflicted about this we did it as a throwaway. We never intended it to become successful.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Then when it became wildly successful and that surprised us, we were both Rick and I were really shocked. <laughs> and, um, uh, the first clue we got was we got a phone call while we were in Edmonton shooting from
3: the manager for the, um, the Rough Riders, or the, uh, it was like the Saskatchewan football team. And it's like, did
0: Rick and I want to fly into, uh Saskatchewan and have drinks with the cheerleaders? And we thought, well, we're young guys doing a TV show. It's just like, well, how bad could that be? You know, I mean, <laughs> so we flew there and when we got off the plane, there was like a thousand people with Bob and Doug signs. And we were like, what the hell? <laughs> so this was the first clue that we got that it had become something. And then I had tried to get the cast to do a cast album and nobody wanted to do it. Because we were shooting the show in the long hours, you know. And I said to Rick, we got to do an album with these guys. And Rick said, yeah, yeah, we we do. And my brother was a recording artist for a Canadian uh, recording artist that had
2: Ian Thomas. Yes.
0: Yeah. He had a deal with uh, Polygram in the States and um, GRT in Canada. So we said, well, let's just see if we can get a deal with those guys. And um, so we got a deal and Rick said, we have to do two songs. And I said, okay, why? Rick had been a DJ. And he said, because that's he said, that's the only way to get airplay. We're not gonna get airplay with spoken word stuff. That they don't that doesn't fly right. on on radio. And he was absolutely right. So we did two songs. We did take off and then 12 Days of Christmas was the second song.
3: And um <laughs> it was um shocking how fast it took off. Oh yeah, and all of a sudden, we get
0: this thing from a, the record company. You know, you're at half a million in sales. You're certified gold. And we're like, half a million? We had a pretty good deal with the record company. And I, I just immediately converted that into what <laughs> my check would be. It was like, okay, this is good. This is really good. Then we get a call here at a million now. What, a million? Holy crap. You know, so then we had to do a promotional tour for polygram in the States. And so that involved Letterman and, you know, some of the hot uh, radio jocks. There's a guy in Chicago named Steve Dahl that was real big at that time. And, um, so, uh, <laughs> we did his show. We did LA. Um, uh, I forget which one it was KLOS or one of those. And, um, Dallas and Miami, and oh, seemed like we were just in limos driving everywhere. You know, Rick, me and Rick sitting in the back, and um, we became really fast. We were good friends prior to that, but going through that experience together really deepened the friendship, you know.
3: And um, and then the movie, you know, um, comes along. And we
0: we had the album was successful, and I said we, we we can sell a movie. I had already written some screenplays in off season from SCTV. I'd done one for Columbia Pictures, and then Joel Silver hired me to write a screenplay for uh Universal, and then and then I did some rewrites for wow. uh Mike Metavoy and then I got. Spies Like Us with Dan Aykroyd at Universal. So I had some point um, in the screenwriting. And I said to Rick, we got to write a, uh, a movie for Bob and Doug. But then NBC and the producers found out, and they said, no, you're under exclusive contract to us. You can't write a movie. Ugh. So we thought, all right, well, we'll take some of our record royalties and we'll hire, we'll hire a writer. We'll hire a writer in L.A. So we hired a guy to write. But because these characters were improvised and basically came from us, nobody could write for them except us, right. you know? Yeah. So we got a script back that was kind of like, what? What is this? You know, it was just didn't work at all, you know? Hmm. But our agent, we were with CAA at that time, and our agents got this script delivered to them on a Friday, and we hadn't even read it. And the agents didn't read it either. They just sent it out to every studio. And by Wednesday, we had a deal.
1: Holy cow. And it was
0: like, we we had barely read the script. And it was bad. And we didn't want to do it. Hmm. And Rick says, um, what are we going to do? And I said, well, we'll rewrite it. And he said, but they bought the other script, Dave. I said, Rick, they didn't even read it. <laughs> I said, "They're they have a... Uh, a, a gold and platinum record-selling duo that are on TV, able to self-promote, they're, they're, sh- we're, they're shooting a deal. They're right. not shooting a script. They're shooting a deal. Exactly. Yeah. And that was true. And so Rick was reluctant. So I started rewriting it myself. And I, I got to about page 30 or something like that. And Rick came over and he said, let me see what you got. And he read it. He said, this is funny. I like this. I said, all right, well, let's see if we can work through this together, you know? So, but anyway, that is what we did. And, and then after that, it was like, it just kept coming back. We could pizza hut spots and then (laughs) Jiffy loop spots and then Molson beer spots. And then, Um, Miller Brewing bought Molson's for U.S. We did them and then we did it was just one thing after another and the characters wouldn't die and then Disney comes to us, these producers and they say we want to do these two mooses (laughs) and Brother Bear as Bob and Doug McKenzie (laughs) well we owned our own characters on SCTV and so Rick and I own Bob and Doug so we didn't have to share any of that revenue with NBC or anybody else. It was just ours. Well, the last thing I was going to do was to hand that franchise over to Disney. And I knew <laughs> Michael Eisner because I'd gotten offered a job with him when he was at Paramount. And I knew what that company was like and I knew all the lawyers that they had. And I said and the agent said, "No, no, we're we're going to word it so that um it, it, they don't have the rights to Bob and Doug McKenzie. I said, no, 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 no. That's not the way to do this. The names Bob and Doug McKenzie cannot appear in any of the contracts at all. If they do, no matter what codicils or what um, things that you have to protect us, their lawyers will get through it and they'll own the characters. Because that's what they do. They own, they buy everything. They want to own everything. And then- brand it and create it and redo it and redo it. And so I said, the way it has to be worded is that we are performing two nondescript voices performed by Dave Thomas and Rick Morantz. And I said, they're going to sound like Bob and Doug, but they can't call them Bob and Doug and they aren't going to use that. And yeah. that's not going to appear in the contract and they're not going to own. It. So that's what we did. And then, you know, now there's statues in Edmonton. I, I know. know if you, <laughs> like, how many comedians have their own statue? You know, it's pretty bizarre.
2: Yeah. So, now, do um, you, Do you think that you guys would ever come back and do do a skits no. or something like that, or, or could you? You're would right. it work?
0: <laughs> no, we're too old. Well, I mean, <laughs> that's that's where I can't give you these speeches about Bob Hope staying. Too long at the party and then say, Yeah, no, I'm gonna right. do it <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> well, I can't do that. Rick won Rick got approached to do Ghostbusters sequel.
1: Right. Yeah.
0: And they really cornered him and cajoled and pleaded. Ivan Reitman's son was directing and got him to wardrobe. Where he put the wardrobe on and those glasses and played that nerdy guy that and he looked in the mirror and he said, I'm 65. I can't do this. Yeah. I can't do this. This is just something that you do when you're 25 or 30, but you can't do this at 65. This is a stupid character and I can't do it. And none of them got it because what they wanted was for Rick to be in the movie. So right. people don't accept your reasons when it goes against what, what they want. Mm-hmm. But I got it. I completely understood what Rick yeah. meant, you know? Yeah. And it was so we you know we'll never do a sequel. And um we did them a, we did their voices for Beer Canada last month. No, two months ago. Oh really? Because Beer Canada comes to us and says, uh, the government has got this thing called an escalator tax on alcohol. And we thought it would be a good idea if you guys, as the McKinsey brothers, went after the government and said, you can't raise the tax on beer. And so we found out Beer Canada is owned by all the breweries and the big liquor companies in Canada. So they got money. Mm -hmm. So, all right, let's do it. But we will do it from home. We're going to record on Zoom. I'm not even gonna go out to a studio and do this. And neither is Rick. Yeah. Rick did it on his phone. He didn't even <laughs> do it on his computer. And see, you have a special microphone for doing your show. Right. But I did mine on just with this mic on Zoom and, and Rick did his on his phone. And it sounded like it, but it worked. Yeah. And they got the government, which was proposing a six point seven percent tax increase. To back off and go down to two. Wow, Kenzie's.
2: So, so there is still a. There was
0: years later. Yeah, it's
2: there, still a reunion. It was a reunion, more or less. <laughs> so, I mean, audio but you only. Have to,
0: you you have to acknowledge that we didn't show our old and ugly faces. You know, we, <laughs> Um, the, there is a um, there's a line in the sand for everybody. I think there's a point at which. Mm-hmm. You could, you know, I was doing a movie uh, years ago that I directed, um, a hospital movie, White Coats, and yeah. Dave Foley was in it. I was in it. And this other guy, who was like a younger version of Dave Foley, and me, because uh, Foley's like a younger version of me, Foley's a decade younger than me, and this kid was a decade younger than Foley. And so we would shoot a take, and then I had a video assist, and I would let the cast if if they wanted to play it back, and if they saw something that they wanted to do, that then make it better, then we'd do another take. And Foley looks at the playback of his scene. He goes, oh, God. I said, what, you want to do another one? He said, no, no. He said, I'm just looking at my face. He said, you know, when I think of what I look like, I think I look more like Peter, the guy who's a decade younger than him. He said, but when I see my face, I realize I look more like Dave. <laughs> <laughs> well, that made me laugh because it was, it was true. And it was like, and I realized, yeah, that's, that's what movies are. Movies should be young people. Cause nobody wants to go and look at horrible old faces blown up 35 times their size on a big screen. Well,
2: you, you know, Dave, no, but you gotta, I, I gotta tell you that the generation that was there at that time would like to see that they, they, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's just part of something that they grew up with and they just want to see it again. That's all. I mean,
0: <laughs> I guess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Brian, Brian Cox, who's doing the show called succession right now, um, yep. plays a character. who's just, a, he's like King Lear. He's like a, a despicable old man who torments his kids. And, um, teases them with giving them the the crown which in this case is a media company
3: but he has no intention of ever letting go Hmm. and um and he's on camera and he looks terrible
0: (laughs) he's this old guy he looks terrible but you know he's reinvigorated uh, he's revitalized but you see other guys that are that I'm fans of like Patrick Stewart when Patrick Stewart did Star Trek Next Generation. He was still a very vigorous and young looking. Now he's doing Picard it's like, "Oh, come on. Don't. Don't."
2: <laughs> when I first saw Picard it was like, "Gee, he still looks the same." And then I happened to watch an old episode of Star Trek Next Generation. It's like, "Wow, he was a lot younger then."
0: <laughs> right? And yeah. that's the biz. Yeah. That's the truth of the business. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Geez. Yeah. Now, Dave, what do you consider to be the highlight of your career? Is there uh, up to this point, up to this point, because I don't think it's over, but.
0: <laughs> yeah, it could be. Um, I can just tell you the things that I had the most fun doing. Yeah, that's great. So Those would be like days that I remember, you know, Uh huh. Um, and it's a cross section of things. I remember uh, the day that I first figured out how to do Bob Hope, and I did the Bob Hope Desert Classic, and that was a great day because I I nailed it, and I knew I'd nailed it, and I felt great, and mm-hmm. that was
3: that was a great feeling. Yeah. Um. There was a. I probably had the most fun with this cast of kids in that movie,
0: White Coats, that I've had. It's not the greatest movie ever made, but it sure was a lot of fun to do. Yeah. And I had a lot of fun doing that. I had a wonderful time in the writing room on Bones. Yeah. Uh, And I I didn't actually do that until I got near the end of my career. I was basically just doing my own shows. And uh, if I didn't create it, I usually didn't do it. With the notable exception of movies, some movies that I did, and Grace Under Fire, which I was originally hired as a writer producer on Grace Under Fire, and did for the first two seasons and then quit because it got too terrible. but the writing room on bones was a wonderful experience, and I had
3: a great time doing that yeah. um i I had some moments on stage at
0: Second City um that were just wonderful. When I first got into the Second City cast I was pretty terrified because I didn't know what I was doing. You know what I mean? I I I'd never taken any improv classes and and I I had basically quit my average job as a copywriter in advertising to come and do this show and it was with Dan Aykroyd and John Candy and these people who knew they were so much better than me at improvising. And I was just the first month or so was just sheer terror every night. Wow. Where I got to the point where I was physically sick. Huh. And then it's really true that the secret to improvising isn't trying to think of what you're gonna say next. The secret to improvising is in listening. And somebody told me to do that. I think it was Sheldon Pedenkin. And So I really concentrated, but I was scared. So I'd be, part of me would still be like, I need a line. I need a joke. I need a thing. But then I stopped. I I started listening. And then the day that I figured that out, it was a wonderful day on stage because everything kind of slowed down. Hmm. It was like all of a sudden thing. It wasn't going too fast for me anymore. All of a sudden. There were openings that I could see almost visually like, oh, I could pop one in there easy, you know, just like just a over the third base pop fly. Yeah. Just It's just you just saw the holes in the openings and they just seemed to be all the time in the world. It was because I was listening. And that was when I figured it out. And that was like the best kind of moment of my performing life was that moment of figuring that out. So,
2: yeah, well, Dave, I want to finish up with one final question. Um, There's so many other things that we could go into, uh, you know, just just so many different things. But um, disregarding all the things that you've done over the years and your, your Grammy nomination, your Emmy win and all those things, your writing and but when you sit back and relax what are your favorite movies now and of the past? And what's your favorite TV shows now and of the past? What are you watching?
0: <laughs> okay. I can name my favorite. I got a bunch of movies that are my favorite movies. And it's a, it's a cross-section. Gladiator is one of my favorite movies. We're going to make another one. Heat is one of my favorite movies with Al Pacino and, and De Niro. Yeah. And Val Kilmer. And Michael Masden and you know what a great, great cast and um also Tombstone with Val Kilmer as doc Holliday. and you know um that, that's I love that movie, I think that's a great movie mm-hmm. um some of the old classics like um miracle on thirty fourth Street Aye. it's a great life, the nineteen fifty Scrooge with Alistair Sim. Mm-hmm. um TV show, Star Trek Next Generation was one of my favorite series because I just thought it was so well written. Some -hmm. of those scripts are just wonderful. And it eclipsed the first um, series with Shatner, I think, in terms of the writing. And it drew me into interesting physics conundrums and Mm -hmm. paradoxes and time travel and things like that. Um, Very, very smart, clever scripts, you know. Um, I like Breaking Bad. I thought that was a good series. I like um, Succession. I've been watching that.
3: Yeah. Uh, I liked uh, Ozark. I thought that was a good oh, series. Yeah. Very good. Um. My um. My son was in Better
0: Call Saul. Oh, I, really? I liked that series, but but. But I know that I was drawn into it because he's in it,
1: mm-hmm.
0: yeah. And
3: certain um, um, thing, I, I, I have some favorite, um, like Tombstone, probably
0: Good, the Bad, the Ugly, um, Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, uh,
3: the the Casden, the Larry Casden, um, Western. Oh, shit. What's it called? Starts with an S.
0: Because uh, I, I grew up on Westerns when I, when I was a kid, so I still got a soft spot for a good Western. You
1: mm-hmm. know?
0: Yeah. The Magnificent Seven, the original one with Yul Brenner and Steve McQueen. That's a great movie. Just so great. And and what a, that's, that's an American theme that I love. It's just like The Wild Bunch. It's like oh, a bunch you. of guys that go you know what it's the right thing to do but we're probably not going to come out of this. Mhm. I know. Let's do it. Yeah. And then they walk in. I love that theme. I I'm a sucker for that theme. And anytime I see that theme I'm like, I'm in. Yeah. I'm in with you guys. <laughs> you know.
2: Yeah. Well, Dave I cannot thank you enough for taking the time to share with us and your memories and everything. It's it's just been so much fun, and uh, listening to you is just just brings us right in, you know, to where you were at, the, at that time. So I thank you so much for taking the time.
0: Thank you for having me on your show. Appreciate it.
2: And a big shout out going to Dave Thomas for joining us here at On Screen and Beyond. And uh, Dave has just got so many stories; it's just amazing. You know, maybe someday we'll have him back uh, for to talk about more things. It's just so much fun having him here. And I uh, hope you enjoyed that one. We have a lot more episodes coming your way of On Screen and Beyond. Like I said earlier, we have uh, the big event coming up at the Orinda Theater in Orinda, California, called Behind the Golden Curtain, a tribute to the Golden Girls. Because of that, we are making connections to have a lot of guests here at On Screen and Beyond in a short period of time. So you're going to be getting extra episodes of On Screen and Beyond. So if you don't know when we're going to do it, normally we do Sunday nights is when the episodes come out. Uh, sometimes we have to delay. Like I said, uh, another time I've told you that, uh, sometimes we don't get the guests to be here until Monday or something. So we have to wait a day or so. But, um, this is a case where, you know, we're just going to be slapping them out and they're going to be coming your way. So, uh, Go ahead and subscribe on your favorite uh, podcast provider. That way, it automatically is downloaded to you, and you can uh, follow us. And you know, it you'll get everything right off the bat without, uh, you know, no cost, anything, nothing like that. It's just that it'll automatically go to you. So uh, that's the way to do it. Because when we do these types of things, where we have special events. You've got multiple episodes coming at you very quickly. So uh, we hope that you'll do that and uh, you'll get the episodes right off the bat. You don't have to wonder when it's coming out. All right, Uh, we appreciate you so much for joining us and hope you're liking us on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and the whole works. You know, we're on all those things and I try to keep as much as I can updated on those. So uh, we uh, hope that you'll keep listening and also following us on those uh, social medias. And uh, that's it. Uh, we got to get moving along here. I've been writing episodes and getting things ready here for the next episode of On Screen and Beyond. So uh, that's it. That's wrap for this episode of On Screen and Beyond. So until next time, when do we once again take you on screen and beyond? I'm Brian Zemarak. Take care. <laughs>